Uh, it was really hard just then. I had to think really deeply, and now I'm explaining it out loud, to not say good morning, <laughs> because that's what I'm so familiar with saying. In fact, when, when we were practicing earlier, I said good morning, welcome to Bethany West Seattle, because um, that's where I'm at, but that's not where we are right now, and that's not the time of day, so I'm going to pretend that I'm starting from the top. Good evening, and welcome to Bethany Community Church. Uh, it's good to be here this evening um, as we're together from uh, different Bethany locations and also um, welcoming friends from around the city. Uh, it's good to be here this evening. Uh, we will be your hosts for this evening. I'm Taylor Greer, and I'm the director of the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation at Bethany, and I'm also the worship director at Bethany West Seattle. And I'm Jonathan Alasco. I'm the Associate Director of Missions and Outreach here at Bethany, and I also get to work with Taylor in our Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation. And wanted to start off our evening by situating our event, our community, within the larger history of the land and the people who historically have stewarded it by giving a land acknowledgement. So if you would uh, listen along with me, we at Bethany Community Church acknowledge that we gather today on the ancestral lands of the Duwamish people of Seattle and of Coast Salish peoples, people who are still here. We express our respect and gratitude for our indigenous siblings, their elders, and for their care and protection of our shared lands and waterways. And now to kind of posture ourselves and prepare our hearts and spirits to engage with what will be shared tonight, just wanted to um, offer a prayer of blessing. Um, God, we're grateful for uh, this community, for this space, for this event, um, just a time to gather, to learn, to engage in a really important issue, uh, an issue that is close to your heart. We're grateful for Dominique and the ways that he has accepted our invitation to bless us with his um, sharing today. And we ask that as we listen, that we listen with um, hearts of humility and openness, and, and not just with a, a posture of humility, but also a posture of faithfulness, a posture ready to respond, to be uncomfortable with what it is you may be saying to us through what he has to share, God. May we, um, as a community, see this event not as the entirety of our racial justice ministry, but as just one important piece that hopefully moves us closer to the kind of community uh, you intended us to, for us to be. Um, it's in your name we pray. Amen. So you being here tonight, us being here tonight, is not on accident. We are all here on purpose. We came to this with intention. And this sort of space is something that's been part of the Ministry of Racial Justice and Reconciliation at Bethany for the past several years as we've wanted to host intentional spaces for being able to show together our commitment to being formed as reconcilers, particularly around the dividing wall of racism. And so I want to say, like, thank you for, for your intention in being here. Uh, and this is something uh, that we're able to do on our own. We're able to read books or listen to podcasts, to wrestle with thoughts on our own. But there's so much significance in coming together and doing that work together as a community. Uh, that's what we do when we gather on Sunday mornings when we're together as a church. And that's what we're doing tonight. Um, we're gathering together as a community to be formed together. And uh, we're not only being formed in our heads for one moment to think about something, to wrestle with something, but I do trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in this space, uh, that there will be things that move from our head to our heart, maybe for the first time, things that move from our heart to our hands. Uh, and so we want to also have intention to invite into next steps. So what are the things that will happen after you leave this space? 
Um, as you came in, you received a postcard, a, a large postcard. If you didn't get one, we'll be able to get one to you. Uh, but that postcard is meant as a space for you through the evening uh, to make note what do you hear? What sparks curiosity? What question comes up for you? Uh, who might you be able to connect with as you take next steps? Uh, there's also a QR code up here that we'll show again at the end uh, that you can snap with your phone uh, to be able to see some next step opportunities, things that you can read, things that you can do. Uh, and I'll explain, or there will be opportunity later um, for what to do with the postcard, but just for now, know that it's your space for interacting with the things that are happening this evening. Um, and uh, you'll be able to uh, leave it here if you want. We'll be able to send it to you in the mail. But I already said more than I meant to about that. I'll tell you more about that at the break. Well, at this point, I'm really excited to introduce our speaker for this year's event, Dominique Dubois-Gilliard. Um, Dominique visits us from just outside Atlanta, Georgia. He is the Director of Racial Righteousness in the Evangelical Covenant Church, and he describes his work as uh, being a pastor to pastors. He works with over 880 different congregations in North America, helping them pursue racial justice in their own ministry context. And so last spring, when myself, Taylor, and Shawnee Scott, when we were discussing and discerning and praying about who we wanted to invite to speak to us, uh, to speak to this community, uh, we thought of Dominique, and we thought of his experience, his expertise, his, his passion for the church and for scriptures, and it was just clear that he was the right person to speak to us at this unique moment in our journey of racial justice. So Dominique, we're so glad and excited that you said yes. Thank you. And would you all join me in thanking Dominique as he comes up and shares with us? Good evening. Oh, we good? All right, there we go. Good evening. I am so excited to be here uh, with you tonight and to be pressing into this conversation. I'm really ecstatic that this is a conversation that all of your campuses have been engaging in and coming off of a robust engagement with the passage that's really critical to unpacking the biblical significance for this conversation in Acts 6, 1 through 7. Um, a beautiful story of how even the early church had to wrestle with what it meant to be a multi-ethnic community and to do this work um, in the midst of our diversity, unified in mission. Um, and so that's still a challenge that the church is trying to navigate today. Um, and so I find encouragement uh, from the fact that this is not a new problem, but this is an issue that we have been trying to wrestle with and struggle with uh, for the duration of the church on earth. Um, and the truth is that... Um, there's still some strongholds at play that we're still trying to uh, liberate ourselves from so that we can bear a more faithful witness in the world. And so um, as we press in today, uh, we're going to do a kind of big picture of this, and then we're going to zoom in on the application text and really unpack what this looks like in Scripture itself. A lot of times when we have conversations about racial justice or conversations about what does it mean to... Uh, kind of bear a prophetic witness, sometimes uh, we don't do it through the text. And I am somebody who wants to let, allow the text to be a blueprint for us as we try to navigate uh, the complexities of our day and time. 
So um, we're going to start with the first slide. Um, and I'm going to show a couple of artistic uh, pictures from a friend of mine. Um, and this is his website. Um, after you see the images, you're going to probably want to recapture that so you can follow his work. But um, I want to start by giving him credit. And let's go to the first slide. So this is a depiction of Revelation 7-9. Um, in this beautiful artistic rendering, uh, we see uh, that we know the scripture tells us that um, around the throne there will be every tribe and people and culture and language celebrated, united in worship of our Lord and Savior. And I think sometimes when we think about uh, racial reconciliation and diversity, we can lose sight of the fact that we don't have to theorize about this, but scripture is clear that this is what we'll be. And one of the ways I think we lose track of that is when we pray the Lord's Prayer, in the Lord's Prayer, we pray that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But when we're in our congregation, sometimes this heavenly depiction of what will be is not forefront on our mind as we think about what does it mean to pursue God's will here on earth as we know it will be in heaven. And so even when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we are acknowledging that diversity is an integral part of the kingdom of God. And this is something that we see from Genesis through Revelation. We see that God is at work in the world, first through Israel, expanding and evolving the family of God into this multi-ethnic mosaic body that is supposed to bear witness to who and whose we are through how we choose to live and love in the divided world. And so for me, it's this beautiful reminder that diversity is not this um, optional add-on to the gospel, but it is something that God is intentional about from the beginning all the way through the end of the biblical narrative. Uh, this next image is a picture of Revelation 22, where we know that it says that we will see uh, this beautiful river coming down and on both sides of the river, there will be a tree of life, and there will be 12 crops of fruit, and the fruit will be used for the healing of the nations. But that word nations can also be translated as ethnicities. You see, the gospel is a healing balm in the midst of the sinful realities that we encounter in our world. It is something that is supposed to bring restoration, liberation, and transformation as we live into our created purpose as the people of God, which is to make God's name known and love shown throughout the world. When we understand how God is at work in the world through diversity, which is a revelatory gift from God, which shows us more of who God is and how God is at work in the world, rather than thinking about diversity as a problem to be solved, then we participate in the divine mission in a different way. And so all of that's important kind of backdrop as we think about this, but I want to start to press into why we understand um, diversity and God's justice from a distinctive way as the people of God. So this first, uh, first passage for me that we really hone in on is Romans 5, 8, where it's clear, but God demonstrated his own love for us while we were still sinners. That's when Christ entered in and died on our behalf. It's not 
once we were nice and neat and put together, once we were deserving, it was while we were undeserving that God enters in on our behalf. And we see Christ show us that ultimately the love and the justice and the things that we pursue um, is really just a reflection of the love that was first extended to us. And I love the way that the free Methodists talk about this, where they talk about love-driven justice. You see, the justice that we pursue in the world is just a reflection of the grace and the love that was first extended to us. So we go to the next slide. The ever so popular John 3.16, where we know that God for so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And so, again, we need to understand that the impulse of the mission is love. We see this consistently, and sometimes I think we can lose track of that. But the thread in which God is bringing transformation and liberation into our world is through love. Let's go to the next slide that goes even more explicitly, and I think this is the one that we kind of lose track of, but it's not coincidental that it's 1 John 3.16 and not just John 3.16. They're connected in a very intentional way, and I think love is one of those words that honestly means all things and nothing at the same time because we use it all the time. We talk about how we love donuts, we love our favorite football team, and we love our spouse. I'm hoping there's a differentiation between what we mean when we deploy love in that way. But because we use it so often, I think oftentimes it's really a watered-down sentiment And scripture doesn't talk about love in that way. Scripture defines love in very intentional and distinctive ways. And I love this passage because it really breaks it open for us. It says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Then it gets even more concrete. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. There is a costly, sacrificial, inconvenient element to love when we root it in Scripture. The way that we talk about love is oftentimes rooted in sentimentality. But the way Scripture talks about love is us responding to the love that was first demonstrated to us by our Lord and Savior, but also responding to the needs of our neighbors. It's a very tangible rootedness to the love the scripture talks about. And then uh, let's go to John 13, 34, and 35. And this is where Jesus gives us a new commandment. And he says, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, out of this whole two verses, the most important word is If, because love is a choice. Love is something that we have to choose. Love is not just a natural byproduct of new life in Christ. It should be, but it's something that we ultimately have to choose. We have to press into it. And when we choose it, we have to know that it's going to be costly. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be sacrificial. And When we live and love in that way, this text tells us the world will know that we belong to Jesus. 
Now, right now, let's be honest. There's a lot of theories floating out there about how the world will know that we belong to Jesus. For a lot of people, it's by who and what we stand against. For other people, it's these culture wars that are being fought. But if we turn back to the text, it tells us that the world will know that we belong to Jesus by how we choose to live and love. And I think the reality is that there are very few opportunities for us to live in love with the prophetic tenor of the gospel, like when we see our neighbors suffering in ways that don't directly impact us, but we choose to enter in and stand in solidarity with them, declaring that that infringement of the image of God on them or that marring of their flourishing is not something that God would ordain and God would stand by. When we choose to enter in when the rest of the world tells us we have the privilege of opting out, that's when we declare to the world that we belong to Jesus because we are living on mission, compelled by the same love that compelled our Lord and Savior to enter in on our behalf through the incarnation. You see, solidarity is this great word of mobilization and activism in the world, but solidarity is derived from Scripture, the most authentic manifestation of solidarity ever displayed in the world is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But we have allowed the world to hijack this concept and claim it as their own when this is ours. But the reason why they've been able to do that is all too often we've been the ones who have been reluctant to enter into suffering that doesn't directly impact us. And when we choose to live in love in a way that is self-serving and not in solidarity, we miss missional opportunities to demonstrate to the world that we belong to Jesus. It's not just this passage saying that when we do this, the world will know. We have to look at it from the flip side. When we choose not to live in the solidarity, what does the world start to think about God? What does the world start to think about the church? And right now, we're actually seeing this in live time where so many of our young people are saying, the church ain't for me. The church is something that I'm not interested in. The church is insular and hypocritical. It's not willing to live sacrificially, to choose solidarity, to share in the sufferings of Christ, which Romans commissions us to be. And so... This passage for me is really going to be the crux of what we're going to press into tonight, and we're going to look at a biblical passage where we actually see the disciples of Jesus have an opportunity to live in this prophetic way, and they choose to enter into the suffering. Um, But before we get there, I want us to listen to a passage that I think is really critical for us when we think about what is biblical justice and what does it mean for us to live in a way that honors God? I think right now uh, there's a lot of passages that I really wish the church were reckon with in a deeper way. But the one for me that I'm really, uh, the spirit is placed on my heart is Isaiah 58. Um, and Isaiah 58 is a passage that really is the the root passage in which Jesus's mission statement in Luke 4 comes from. It's a it's a spin from Isaiah 58. But in this passage, um, when we talk about the work of racial reconciliation and racial justice, the truth is that scripture commissions us to be people who are prayerful, but also people who are 
fasting in, in regards to our discernment around what it means to faithfully follow Christ. And the truth is that fasting has kind of fallen off the church's radar a little bit. It's a thing that we do during Lent, but even the Lenten fast that we do, let's just see how different it is from the fast that the Lord actually requires and desires of us in Isaiah 58. So we're gonna play this audibly. I want you to just listen to this passage and listen to what God is actually saying Israel is doing for a fast and what God actually desires Israel to do in its fast. So. Cry aloud, shout, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? They act like righteous people that would never abandon the word of God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Why aren't you impressed? Here's why. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. You fast, but you argue and fight over small things. You fast, but you attack those who don't think and act like you. This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere. You go through the motions, bowing your heads like plants, bending in the wind, dressed in clothes for mourning. Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to God? This is the kind of fast I'm after. To break the chains of injustice, to lighten the burdens, to free the oppressed, to cancel the debts, to share your food with the hungry, give shelter to the homeless, to clothe those who need it. Don't turn away from your own flesh and blood. They are your family. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Your healing will quickly appear. Your righteousness will go before you and the glory of God will go behind you. You will call and God will answer. You will cry for help and God will say, here I am. Remove the heavy burden of oppression. Do away with the gossip and finger pointing. Feed the hungry. Help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in the sun. And God will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in the emptiest of places. Restoring your strength. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Restore, renovate, rebuild the broken in your community. Raise up the old foundations. You will be called repairer of the broken systems. Restorer of home and community. So in this passage, in Isaiah 58, we see that part of the missional purpose of the people of God is to live and love in a way that we become known by the world as repairers of the breach. You see, sin has created breaches and chasms within our society, within our relationships, within our institutions. And we are supposed to be people who have eyes to see that, ears to hear that, and tender hearts to respond to the brokenness that abounds. The world will know that we belong to Jesus by how we choose to live and love in the midst of the breaches that exist in our world. When we are people who are willing to turn a blind eye to the suffering that doesn't directly impact us, when we take the posture of the ministers in the Good Samaritan passage, the world doesn't see Jesus in our witness. 
But when we are the people who are willing to cross, we don't cross by on the other side of the road, but we actually tend to the wounded in our midst. God is putting wounded people in our path. And God is saying, are you willing to interrupt what you have planned for your life for this divine encounter that I've placed before you? And oftentimes we can get so busy doing good works that we say, I actually don't have the time for this. And we can justify it in all our nice religious language and all of the priorities that we have and the good things that we're trying to do, but we are missing opportunities to choose sacrificial love. And I want us to really sit with that, um, but I want us to press into the story of Paul and Silas in Acts 16, verses 16 through 40. Um, This is one of my favorite passages um, in scripture. And I'm going to first tell you the way that I was historically taught this passage. And then we're going to go back and actually do some deeper digging. So the way that I learned this passage is that Paul and Silas are out there preaching the gospel. And because they're preaching the gospel, they make some people angry. And the people they make angry decide to throw them in prison. But Paul and Silas are so on fire for Jesus that once they go into the prison, they're singing songs and hymns like the civil rights movement. And they refuse to be silenced by the prison and ultimately the Spirit is activated and the whole prison's foundation starts to shake. The cells open up and Paul and Silas have a chance to go and be free because the cell doors have opened up. But because they're good Christians, they choose to stay. And they choose to stay and they see that the guard is about to kill himself because he knows that these dangerous people have just gotten free and it's going to be put on him. And they say, don't kill yourself. We're still here. And then they evangelize to him and bring him to faith. And he and his whole family come and get baptized. Beautiful story. Literally, it is a beautiful story. But it's just half the story. It misses so much of what's actually going on in this text. And I think for me, one of the challenges with racial justice in the church is that we have settled for half of the goodness of the gospel. We have not done the hard work of really unpacking all that scripture has for us as we try to navigate the complexities of faithfully following Jesus in a divided world. And so let's go back and actually recap this passage and go a little bit deeper underneath the surface to understand some of what's actually going on. So Acts 16, if we go to the next slide, is a story about a corrupt judicial system that was more committed to profiteering than it was to justice, that was rooted in bigotry and oppressive violence, and where devout disciples who refused to turn a blind eye to injustice within their midst. It is also about the inherent connection between evangelism and justice. So... What's going on in this passage? Paul and Silas are actually on their way to worship. They encounter this demon-possessed woman. This woman is being exploited by some powerful men in the town who are ultimately using her as a fortune teller to make a fortune. Paul and Silas are irritated because they understand the possession going on in this woman, and they ultimately go to her and liberate her from her possession. In doing so, the text says that the men, powerful men who were exploiting her, became enraged because their hope for making money was gone. Then it says that they threw the entire city into an uproar. That should make us pause. 
why would Paul and Silas, liberating this one demon-possessed woman, throw the entire city into an uproar? Well, because the text is trying to point to the fact that there is this broader underweb of exploitation that is funding the city. And when Paul and Silas start to liberate this woman, it puts the stability of that undercurrent in question. And so these powerful men are, excuse my language, they're pissed off. And they want to make Paul and Silas pay for the fact that they are threatening the oppressive status quo of the city. And so what they decide to do is they decide to take Paul and Silas to the marketplace, which doubles as the judiciary. Again, Scripture's trying to give us a clue. Why would the place where justice is supposed to be served also be the economic center? Because the justice system was more concerned with profiteering than it was with justice. Paul and Silas go, and when they bring charges against, I mean, when these two men bring charges against Paul and Silas, the very first thing that they do is they say that these men are Jews advocating for customs that are unlawful for us Romans. So I want you to understand the intentional creation of the us versus them category that they're doing. And they're doing it very intentionally because in Rome at this time, there was a strong sense of anti-Semitism. And it was very well known that Jews stood no chance of receiving justice in Rome's courts. So Paul and Silas are intentionally pitted and cast as the others. And as soon as they do that, Scripture says that the crowd starts to participate in their persecution. They are stripped... (laughs) They are stripped of their clothes, they are beaten with rods, and they are ultimately denied access to a trial because they are cast as the other. This is important because we need to reckon with the fact that because of sin, it doesn't just divide our relationships on a one-to-one level, it distorts our systems and structures. It distorts laws. It distorts governance. And it is rooted in an anti-gospel belief that there is this sliding scale of humanity where certain people are more reflective of the divine image than other people. It is rooted in a denial of the biblical truth that we find in the first pages of Scripture in Genesis where this theological concept of the Imago Dei is unpacked where we are told that all people are equitably made in the image of God. But we live in a world that says that that's not true, that certain people are more reflective of the divine image, and they deserve more protection, and they deserve better treatment than other people. And we are seeing this confliction between the worldly logic and the biblical truth. And it's playing out for us right here in real time in this passage. So Paul and Silas are intentionally misidentified as Jews. And they go and they endure the humiliation of being publicly persecuted, falsely incarcerated, and denied access to a trial. They're thrown into prison. And when they're in prison, yes, they do continue to praise Jesus because these brothers are on fire for the Lord. And they say that I know that you have just disrespected me you have denied me of my rights, but I know that I serve a God who's bigger than all of that and still has the power to save and liberate me from your perceived power. So 
What's important with this, though, is that as we go down the line, we come to realize that Paul and Silas are actually not Jews, but they are actually Roman citizens themselves. And that Paul and Silas are very aware that the only reason why they are being mistreated and discriminated against is because they've been intentionally misidentified as Jews. So because they know this, the entire time they are being persecuted, the entire time that they're suffering, they know actually all they have to do is pull out their citizenship status and say, you can't treat me like this. I'm actually a person of privilege. I actually have papers. But Paul and Silas choose not to do that as a prophetic way of sharing in the sufferings of Christ to stand in solidarity with their immigrant neighbors who didn't have that privilege of opting out of suffering every time they endured the Roman judicial system. You see, Paul and Silas knew that it would not have been a faithful witness to Jesus Christ for them to use their privilege to opt out of suffering when their neighbors don't have that option. They knew that it would not be a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ for them to realize that they had a judicial system that worked for some people, but not all people. And for them to be the ones who it worked for, for them to opt out would just to sustain the brokenness that was already entrenched within the legal system. So they said, we are going to keep our privilege in the back of our pocket. We are going to Sorry if I'm moving too much. We are going to endure the suffering that our immigrants' neighbors have to as a prophetic witness to who and whose we are. We are going to choose to live and love in a way that costs us because we know that God is not pleased by a system that only works for some and not for all of God's children. You see, this is the call of the gospel. The gospel is not just about making our lives nice and clean and comfortable and distancing ourselves from suffering. The gospel actually calls us into suffering. It calls us into solidarity with those who suffer in ways that we don't have to. And we do it because we, lo- we serve a Lord and Savior who entered into our suffering when he didn't have to, compelled by love. We are supposed to be compelled by love. So Paul and Silas demonstrated that when followers of Jesus notice injustice, that we have a responsibility to intervene and work to end it, whether we helped create the injustice or not. Paul and Silas confronted a sin that their country's foreparents were responsible for, a sin that they as Roman citizens were still benefiting from. Now, I want you to sit with this. Paul and Silas were not lawyers. They weren't judges. They weren't part of the judiciary. They did not create the problem. But they still had a responsibility for repairing the breach. We in this country have a real problem sitting with that truth. There are a lot of breaches that you and I did not create. There are a lot of breaches that many of you still benefit from in me in ways in regards to gender that I benefit from. I didn't have to create the problem to be responsible for fixing the problem. When we offer, opt into the, the new life in Christ, we are not supposed to think like the rest of the world. Romans 12, 1 and 2 explicitly tells us that we are not supposed to conform to the patterns and the logic of this world, but we are supposed to be transformed but through the renewing of our mind by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
we don't have the option of saying, yes, the systems are broken. There's rampant injustice all around us, but I didn't create the problem, so I don't have to fix it. That's not a gospel ethic. Anytime you hear Christians responding in that way, they are attesting to the fact that they have conformed to the pattern of this world and not had their minds renewed by the power of the gospel. We are supposed to be people who live distinctive lives because of who and whose we are. Paul and Silas bear witness to that in this story. Rather than exploiting the benefits of Roman citizenship for selfish gain or to opt out of suffering, they subversively use their Roman citizenship to bear witness to their true citizenship as followers of Christ. Citizens of the kingdom of God. The hard truth of the gospel is that we cannot passively benefit from sin and faithfully follow Jesus. I want to say that again. We cannot passively benefit from sin and faithfully follow Jesus. Paul and Silas realized that as followers of Christ, they were complicit if they knew that people without Roman citizenship, particularly Jews, were routinely denied justice within Rome's judicial system, yet did nothing to address the systemic problem. They also realized it would have been an unfaithful witness to exploit their privilege as Roman citizens to opt out of suffering and the persecution that their immigrant neighbors without Roman citizenship were subjected to on a daily basis. True solidarity requires suffering with, entering in when privilege tempts us to believe that we don't have to. This posture of solidarity should be a hallmark of our new life in Christ. This passage exposes privilege as a biblical concept and gives followers of Jesus a blueprint for how we should act when we encounter systemic sin and oppression that impairs the lives of our neighbors but doesn't directly impact us. So what is privilege and where is it in this text? So I want to make it very clear for us so people don't think I'm making up something or adding to the text. Let's go... Yep, there we go. So in verses 38 and 39, it makes it very clear. So Paul and Silas are lingering in prison. They've been denied access to a trial. They've been falsely incarcerated. They've been publicly humiliated. They've been stripped naked, beaten with rods, persecuted by the whole crowd. And they're still in there praising the Lord. And in the midst of this, word gets back to the magistrates that Paul and Silas are not Jews, but they're actually Roman citizens. And the text literally says when they came into this awareness, they were alarmed. Now check this. These judges didn't care nothing about the experience that Paul and Silas had before when they thought they were Jews. When they didn't think that these were people of privilege with some status who could actually publicly hold them accountable for their oppression. They didn't care. That's what privilege is. When you think that certain people should be protected and respected and dignified in a way that other people don't, that is privilege. That is a sinful ideology that is not aligned with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that it says as soon as they became alarmed, then it says they came to appease them and escort them from prison. And then they requested them to leave the city. Now, why do they want them to leave the city? 
because they want to keep their sinful behavior under the veil of darkness. But I love, this is my favorite part of the passage. So let's go to the next verse, the verse before. So Paul says to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves to escort us out of the city. You see, Paul and Silas sit on that privilege card this whole time until they say, now it's time for accountability. Now I'm going to subversively use my privilege to hold the system accountable and to publicly shine a light on the sin that you've been concealing this whole time. You see, there is a missional purpose to privilege. Privilege is not just this distorted thing that you can't do anything with and God can't redeem. But the question is, are you going to use your privilege to opt out of suffering, to make your life more nice and neat and comfortable, and to distance yourselves from the problem of the world? Or are you going to subversively use your privilege to expose sin and to call for systemic accountability and gospel transformation? That's what we see Paul and Silas do in this story. And it's such a prophetic witness for us in this moment in time today where we are living in a nation where there are rampant injustices and there are systemic realities of privilege that we don't want to confront. And when we do confront it, we say, well, I didn't create the problem, so I'm not responsible. I want us to double down, turn back to the word of God and get a blueprint for what it means for us to prophetically bear witness to who and whose we are in a world that desperately needs to know that something else is possible. We are the people of God. We have been given the power of the Holy Spirit that has the power to bring life out of death. But when we choose our own self-interest instead of living on mission for the kingdom, We, again, forsake missional opportunities to bear witness to who and whose we are and to help other people see that God sees the suffering. God sees the injustice. God sees the denial of the image of God in our neighbors. And God is commissioning us as the hands and feet of Christ to bear witness to the fact that God does not condone this nonsense. God is calling us to be something different And we get a chance to use what the world intended for harm to redeem it. We get a chance to use the fact that certain people are going to let us into certain conversations and we're going to get access to certain tables that our neighbors don't. And when we get to those places and spaces, we're supposed to use them subversively to bear witness to what God has commissioned us to be about in the world. Paul and Silas's witness in this passage is one of the most important things that I think the American church needs to sit with in this moment in time. We are seeing young people fleeing from our churches because they are tired of the hypocrisy that they see in our witness. We have to understand, to use Dr. King's language, the fierce urgency of now. This is a watershed moment. This is a moment where the church is watching. I mean, the world is watching and waiting. And they want to see if we are going to be people who are willing to share in the sufferings of Christ, to choose solidarity over our self-interest, 
to subversively leverage privilege to sacrificially love our neighbors and to expand the kingdom? Or are we going to choose to just make our lives more comfortable and neat and distance ourselves from the suffering? Paul and Silas prophetically demonstrate that privilege is something Christians are called to steward and not exploit for selfish gain. Privilege then becomes a revolutionary tool that those who possess it are commissioned to leverage to hold corrupt systems and structures accountable and to forge systemic transformation that they know those without the same privileges, access, and social currency are unable to wield within our distorted society. So I want us to watch this video from a friend of mine by the name of Micah Bournet. Um, It's a spoken word video. And one of the reasons why I want us to see this video is kind of like this story. If Paul and Silas had not had actual encounters and drawn near to their immigrant neighbors who didn't share the same privileges as they did, they probably wouldn't have had a vision for what it meant to subversively leverage their privilege on behalf of the collective good. And I think sometimes we, we, within our good intentions, shelter ourselves from communing with people who have a categorically different life than us who can actually help us see some of the ways in which we are blinded to the way that our privilege manifests itself in the world. Um, There is this old community development proverb that says that those who are closest to the problem are also closest to the solution. And I don't think that we really believe that as the church because we constantly go into communities and territories that we don't know nothing about but we got a whole list of solutions for how to fix the problem for them. We don't go in, commune, and actually authentically have a relationship with them, but we know how to fix their problems. Um, but this passage talks about a new missional way of thinking about relationships. Now, I want to break that down. We don't just go become friends with people just to save them. That's not the purpose of relationships. We're supposed to authentically go and live life with people who are different than us. And in that life exchange, we start to become open. Our eyes start to become open to things that were previously um, blinded to. But I want to listen to this spoken word piece because I think it really talks about the power of proximity. And we see this with Paul and Silas. They had proximity to their Jewish neighbors. They had proximity to immigrants who didn't have the same privileges as they did. And that proximity compelled them to live sacrificially into the love narrative of the gospel. So let's listen to this spoken word piece. A lot of people see justice as the most futile thing you can do with your life. Give your life completely to business and you see the money piling up. Be a health nut, eat right, go to the gym, and your muscles will grow and your body will look good and you'll see results. But when it comes to justice, it seems like you just can't get ahead. You patch up one hole and something else rips open. You bring peace to one region and war breaks out in another. You rebuild after an earthquake and a tsunami hits. And you work and you work and you work and there's never any profit. There's no bank where you can store a surplus amount of justice in. Stability is never permanent. Something always tips and people always ask, is it even worth it? 
And that question, though understandable, it's, I mean, quite frankly, it's ridiculous. And it rarely comes from those who are actually tired from pursuing justice and not just tired of the idea. It rarely comes from people who've labored for years and have good reason to ask it. And you know why they never ask? Those type of people become friends with those who suffer. Family even. Because it's one thing to wonder if someone else's freedom is worth fighting for. But when you begin to identify with that someone else, commune with them, that's when the question is no longer worth asking. That's when it becomes offensive even. What do you mean, is it worth my time? That doesn't even deserve an answer. I don't care how long it takes. I don't care how many times you fail. I don't care how little progress is made. You never stop fighting for your own. You never stop fighting for your own. And if there is one biblical truth that has evaded us in the Western church, it is that we are each other's own. We belong to one another. But we live in a world that teaches us relentlessly that blood is thicker than water. But the truth of the gospel is that the baptismal waters are thicker than our biological bloodlines. And it's baptism that inaugurates us into a new family, a new mission, a new purpose in the world. And we are called to function as an interconnected body. Which means that when we see suffering impacting the other parts of the body, we can no longer respond by saying, that's not my problem. Because we understand that my neighbor's problem is my problem. And how I choose to respond to that problem declares to the world that I belong to Jesus. You see, this is a critical issue for us and our witness in the world today when so many people are questioning what is the purpose of the church? Does the church have any integrity? Does the church have any credibility? When we choose to live and love in a way that says the solidarity is a gospel ethic, the world will start to notice and they will start to say, hey, maybe we wrote the church off too fast. Maybe the church does have something to offer us in those watershed moments. Maybe there is still life in the body of Christ. And so let's close by this juxtaposition between a worldly ideology uh, that oftentimes in theological terms we call empire. The ways of this world are oftentimes referred to as empire. And then the ways of the gospel are referred to as kingdom. So let's look at the differences between a worldly logic and a kingdom logic. So the world tells us that we exploit privilege for selfish gain. But the gospel tells us that we leverage privilege to advance, sacrificially advance the kingdom of God. I mean, sorry, we, we leverage privilege to advance the kingdom of God and sacrificially love our neighbors. The world tells us that we exercise privilege to opt out of suffering. The gospel calls us to share in the sufferings of Christ. And that when we enter in, we do, um, we enter in when everything around us tells us that we don't have to. The world tells us that privilege is something that 
should really seduce us into apathy and complicity and indifference in the face of suffering. The gospel tells us that we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ by prophetically standing in solidarity with our neighbors who suffer. The world tells us that privilege really is something that tempts us in the thinking in the us and them categories that we saw the, the Roman legislation doing. But the gospel tells us that we are interdependent and our flourishing is bound to our commu- Our individual flourishing is bound to our communal flourishing. And the world tells us that privilege is something that should seduce us into living into what the ministers do in the story of the Good Samaritan when they pass by on the other side of the road because they're too busy with their own agenda to actually stop and have this divine encounter. But the gospel tells us that we're supposed to take on the mindset of Christ and follow the example of the Good Samaritan who is actually the good and faithful neighbor. We have to understand the way in which we are being discipled by this world into things that are diametrically opposed to the truths of Scripture. When we don't take the worldly discipleship that we're constantly immersed in seriously, we are slowly but surely going to be seduced away from the truths of the gospel, and we're going to live a lukewarm faith that is incapable of bringing gospel transformation in the places that is needed the most. Paul and Silas prepare uh, Paul and Phyllis bear a prophetic witness around what it means for us in this critical moment to live in a world, live and love in a way that the world knows that we belong to Jesus. Thanks, Dominique. Uh, I'm uh, Glad to be able to thank you now and knowing we'll be able to continue in this evening together. Um, So we're at a moment right now that we're going to have a bit of a transition opportunity. So if you have kiddos who are in kids program, you can go and pick up your kids and you're welcome to come back. Or if you need to head out for um, bedtime routine, you can do that. Um, We're also going to, uh, in a moment, I'll have Nathan come up to give an invitation to our students who are here. Um, And then the third is for everybody else in the room. Uh, If you didn't already get a postcard as you were coming in, or if you've already written all over your postcard and you need another one, um, we're going to be able to get you a postcard. And during this time, we're going to do turn to somebody around you just to be able to, after listening to Dominique, what's something that you're thinking about, something that you heard, uh, whether it's a question or even something that you want to pursue, something that stood out to you. So take time to talk together, um, use your postcard as a resource, and then we're going to regroup uh, in about five minutes. I am Nathan, the youth pastor up at Bethany North. Uh, If you're a student in middle school or high school, 6th to 12th grade, we'd love to invite you. We have a crew of leaders here from uh, Bethany North, and I also know that there are uh, youth pastors like myself from other campuses who are here. Uh, We would love to meet you in the CLC upstairs in the Community Life Center, which is just right across the way. We can have some folks out there to help guide you. And then we'll go upstairs in the CLC and then go into breakout rooms uh, where we'll be able to discuss together kind of what we heard, uh, what did this make us think, and uh, yeah, what's our next steps. So if you're 6th to 12th grade, CLC, we're excited to see you there.
Okay, everyone, if we could start wrapping up those conversations, love seeing that kind of energy. Plenty of time afterwards to continue those. Um, but now we're going to transition into the next part of our evening where we're going to kind of have a bit of a discussion among uh, Dominique, some of our staff members at Bethany. And our hope is that um, as we're sharing, you guys will also participate in, in your own way. The goal isn't that you're just kind of consuming what we're sharing, but in your own ways are engaging, are wrestling, are questioning, are receiving in, in a variety of ways what we're sharing and the kind of questions we're engaging so feel free to kind of continue to jot those thoughts down on the postcards. Um, but before we go into the questions we prepared, just want to take a moment to, for those who are joining us um, to, to kind of share who they are. Um, so would you like to start? Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, my name is Megan Cowell, and I'm a director of spiritual formation with our West location. Uh, but I've also had the privilege of uh, a role called the Roadmap to Reconciliation Co-Lead, so for the last couple of years, I've been working alongside uh, Taylor and Pastor Scott in this process that we've been engaging as a church. So both, um, we were charged, charged by Dr. McNeil and Associates, um, her organization, to, to do a deep dive within our staff culture, within who, what our structure looks like before um, ultimately getting to this point. So that's what I've been a part of. My name is Scott Sund, and I am a co-lead of our ministry of racial justice uh, cohort learning. I'm a location pastor at Bethany North, and I'm the senior pastor of Bethany's six locations. Well, Taylor, myself, and Dominique have already introduced ourselves, and I'm going to kind of act as a, as a moderator, as a facilitator, really try to give space for the rest of you all to, to kind of share. Um, I'm going to start by engaging what we heard in the ways that um, perhaps encouraged us, challenged us, and so I'm going to read the question as it's written, but how did the Spirit encourage you through what Dominique shared? And how did the Spirit challenge you? And, and for Dominique, you can answer it in a different way. Perhaps what's stirring in you? What did you want to say, but you perhaps didn't able, weren't able to say? So um, I think we, was it Taylor? We agreed to go first. Taylor, go for, go for it. Yeah, so something that really impacted me was at the end in watching the video about solidarity and just after hearing the story of Paul and Silas told in a new way, because I definitely am very familiar with the Sunday school version. There probably is a song that I know in the back of my mind <laughs> connected to that story. But just the idea of um, solidarity being entering into relationship that then is wanting to like Ex, like that experiences the pain and is pushing against it. So that image of the character pushing against that wall that was encroaching, like I felt that viscerally because I, I feel like I know what it is in a way to be that person sitting on the ground and have somebody holding something back from me. Um, and so, and then putting that into the story of the gospel of like sin encroaching Jesus putting himself there and then so this is both an encouragement and a challenge to me that I'm feeling is like it's encouraging to be the one who's receiving the pushing but like how am I putting myself on the line in that way to be part of holding something back and the way that that video ended of like you'll do that for somebody that's your own like it's not a ridiculous question when somebody is your family um, and just that idea of like, what is it to live like we are each other's own? Um, like that's huge. I mean, I know how to do 
Sunday morning hospitality of like, it's good to see you. Like week after week, I'm with you for an hour, but like for it really to be like living like we are each other's own and knowing my neighbors in that way. Um, yeah, moving the racial justice and reconciliation thing that just rolls so easily off of my tongue because it's part of what I do for work, but like that that's something that is about where I put my body um, and what I do in relationship. Like, yeah, that's stirring things up in me. I'll just kind of piggyback on that. And for me, um, you know, growing up, my mom and dad used to tell me all the time, you know, you can talk bad about your sister and brother, but don't let nobody else talk bad about your sister and brother. <laughs> and it's that concept of like how you show up for family um, and how you will relentlessly contend for the humanity, the dignity, the character of your family. And if the church would ever live into its baptismal identity, and contend and struggle and fight for the humanity and the dignity of our interconnected body in that way, could you imagine how different the world would be and how the world would look to the church when there is injustice and oppression as opposed to criticizing and critiquing about all the hypocrisy? Like, that's what good news looks like. The church functioning in that way. And I just, like... I get so excited. You probably hear it in my voice. Like I just get so excited, like imagining the church living into its biblical identity, like being what we're commissioned to be in the world. And we have the opportunity. And given the division and the derision that's happening right now, this is one of the clearest opportunities for the church to step forward and be what we're supposed to be in a way that captures the world imagine, uh, the world's attention to say like, well, what makes you live in love in that way? And that's when we have to be prepared to declare that there's nothing special about us, but there is a power at work in and through us that compels us to live in love in ways that push us beyond our own human limitations. And that's where the evangelism and the justice go hand in hand. It always has to be this interconnectedness and not this either or. And so I think for me, like when you tell that story, like that's the thing that comes to mind for me. And lastly, I'll just say the one thing that I wanted to say in my time and the tech stuff threw me off a little bit is it's really important for us to know as the body of Christ that the gospel is an invitation to participation. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of times we think about the gospel and in poor discipleship churches, they talk about the gospel essentially as this, this, this get out of hell free card. The gospel is not that. It is an invitation to participation. We're called, we're invited by our creator to participate in the reconciling work of God. Scripture says God was in Christ reconciling the world to God's self. Not just broken people, but the world, which includes creation and broken systems and structures. And as repairers of the breach, we are supposed to be participating in that reconciling work through how we choose to live and love in a world that has other interests and priorities. So this is meant to be a conversation. And part of it is great because we've been sitting in conversation for a little bit. So I'm going to lean into that like mode here. But what a, a lot of what is stirring up in me, even as you guys are sharing about this and talking about it, is this 
idea that in order to do that, like you talked about pipelines to proximity, like in order to, to get ourselves out of our own, we have to take ourselves out of our own comfort zones in order to even understand like what's happening outside of our little bubbles. So it's just making me think too, like it's really easy for us to, and, and that's not to say that there's not pain and suffering that, that we're all going through or experiencing, um, even though we have things like education and class and race and all these other things that give us um, privilege. But, but even in, those, in our own brokenness, we have the ability to see that there are things happening not just in our own spaces, but on the other side of the train tracks or in these other spaces that we can't just ignore as if, um, as if we don't see it, we don't have to worry about it. Because... Again, our kids are calling us out for that. They see it. They're aware of it in ways that we will probably never understand growing up in a particular technological uh, age range. But, like, we have this opportunity to, like, get to know people in a way that we've never had before. And until we do that, like, our church is missing out on something. We're missing out on part of who we are. So, just thinking about that. It's funny you say uh, our kids are calling us out, and Dominique has spoken about that several times, about just the next generation and the mandate to disciple the next generation. And I was speaking with my kids last night about this moment, and and they were like, wait, you're a white guy. Why are you going to be on stage for the reconciliation event? And I was explaining to them, because it's important for us, like of all skin tones, but especially for for us being a predominantly white church historically to lean into the work, to say like, hey, privilege, we're, we're elevating the conversation from like, is it a thing or not? To say, how do we leverage the tools in our hands for the sake of the church to flourish? And so when you say like, when we opt in, when the rest of the world says we opt out, like that's where we regain the prophetic witness. That's where we become the church. And people are looking at the church to say, hey, do you have something to offer the world or not? So it's amazing because all day long as I've sat with you, I do feel this hope bubbling up in me that as we name, you know, the repairs of the breach and we name the brokenness before we get into the being the repairs, like God is stirring and moving for us to regain the, through the moment that we're in to say like, this is how we become the church again. I love that idea or what you said about hope bubbling up. Uh, So we've... Uh, staff has been able to be with Dominique for pretty much the whole day in different spaces, and I've felt that too. And it's curious to me right now as I think about like what what does this hope feel like? It's it feel hope feels like courage to me. Like I feel like I could. Uh, there's a there's a there's a psalm where David says, "With my God, I can scale a wall," and that verse came to mind recently and I was like what does that mean like he feels like he could scale a wall but that feels like hope that means like there's something like this wall isn't going to keep me from God's goodness like there's something on the other side of the wall and like with God this wall is not going to keep me held back so I'm, I'm feeling like with my God I can scale a wall who wants to scale a wall with me yeah <laughs> so two things I think that just both your comments brought to mind for me. One was the first comment you made, Taylor, where you were talking about our bodies. And it takes me back to Romans 12, um, verse 1, where it says that we are supposed to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to the Lord. And we're in a moment right now where 
protest and activism, again, are so normative out in the streets where people are literally putting their bodies on the line for what they believe. But oftentimes the church is absent. And I remember that the church, the early church, didn't have that privilege of being absent. They understood that their physical bodies were part of their worship to God, and they had to put their physical bodies on the line, like Paul and Silas did, by being physically persecuted to stand in solidarity. And there's something missing in our discipleship that has allowed us to opt out of bodily embodying the gospel. And and for me, one of the things I try to really lay bare in the book is this question that I think the scripture really compels us to ask if we let scripture speak on its own terms. And that is, is the gospel still good news when it costs us something? And I think this question about our bodies really starts to make us think about it in a different way. Like you talked about physically using your body as a shield for the person who's sitting down. And I think Paul and Silas physically used their body as a shield for their immigrant neighbors who didn't have the same privileges and uh, respecting fair treatment, equitable treatment for the justice system. So how might the spirit be compelling us in this room to consider how we're supposed to be using our physical bodies as an act of worship. Um, so, Dominic, what you're sharing right now reminds me of something you shared earlier about one of the challenges of the church's engagement with um, justice is that we have settled for half of the goodness uh, of the gospel. I think that really kind of hit me and perhaps hit uh, many of us here. And I, you tell the story about Paul and Silas and how you grew up Hearing it, and it's a beautiful story, it's a good story, it's a true story, but also it's like, it's an incomplete story. And there was a moment, perhaps for a lot of us, including myself, I was like, wow, there's this aha moment that there's more goodness in the story that we've been missing. Can you tell us a bit more about that moment for you? For many of us, today was that moment. What, what, what was that for you, and what did that mean? What did that look like? Yeah, so um, I think the, the biblical passage that really helped me have that aha moment was um, Exodus 1, 6 through 2, 10, um, the story of Moses being born into the world and um, the Egyptian empire that becomes the most prosperous empire the world had ever known to that point, And all of their economic flourishing is rooted in the dehumanization, economic exploitation, and enslavement of their Hebrew neighbors. And... Um, Pharaoh becomes such a despotic leader and totalitarian leader that he ultimately creates a law that says that all Hebrew boys must be put to death. Now, he also does that out of his own pride because he can't imagine women actually creating a resistance that could bring him to his knees. He only thinks men have the power to do that. But the beautiful thing of how God works in scripture is that in that passage, there's not one man who actually does or what's right in the whole passage. It's all women who are prophetically uh, bearing witness to who and whose they are in a way that ultimately brings the Egyptian empire to its knees um, through Moses. But we like to celebrate Moses, but we don't like to acknowledge that there never would be a Moses without the prophetic witness of these women who cultivate a way for his life to be saved. But the, the revelation 
for me is I had heard the story about Moses my whole life, but like no one had ever talked to me about like really the prophetic witness that we see all of these women play, but most explicitly Pharaoh's daughter play in the prophetic way. She stands up to her father, the most powerful man in the land. And I love this passage because I'll just be quick. There are a couple things that we taught in Sunday school. You were taught to never lie, to always obey your parents, and to never break the law. All three of those things are not true in this passage. And so it became this like really like crazy, subversive, like revolutionary passage about how even the person closest to power and privilege and proximity can have their eyes opened by the power of the gospel and that they can live prophetically in a way that declares who and whose they are through the choices that they choose to engage in. And it was just a revolutionary thing for me because I was like, if Pharaoh's daughter can get this, there's not a person in this world who can't actually have the scales fall from their eyes and be compelled to live prophetically for Christ. There's something I really appreciate in your book um, as, a, as a woman reading it is that like Dominique is an advocate for women also. Like you read through these chapters and the, I won't give it away, but now you'll want to go buy it. Uh, in the, one of the other chapters, he talks about um, Queen Vashti and I had never heard her put in a good light. And just the way that he mentions and describes this character as like being a subversive witness to, um, to change for her people is really amazing. So thank you for being an advocate for women. Thank you. And I just want to say real quick, I think there are going to be ways in which if we take our embodiment, how our bodies are constructed um, seriously, there are going to be ways in which we experience privilege and there are going to be ways in which we don't. And oftentimes when we are sober enough to say like, there are some ways that I experience the positive side and the negative side, then it starts to give us an imagination of how we can actually be the people who actually use our bodies to shield other folks who don't enjoy the same privileges as us. Maybe it's that you are connected to somebody who is neurodivergent and you are neurotypical. And that's a way in which you're privileged in a way that somebody in your community isn't. As me as a male, it would have been super easy to write a book about privilege and just talk about and harp on race and not to actually talk about the privileges that are connected to gender and um, my masculinity. Like, But the thing that gives us integrity to speak into the world in a prophetic way is when the world sees that we're willing to do the same internal work that we're calling them to in our own lives. And so, like, as the church, like, we should be the first people who are willing to acknowledge that certain broken systems do work for us, but we're not content with the fact that they work just for us. And we're going to subversively use what we have to deconstruct them in a way and deconstruct them so that we can reconstruct them so that they work for all of God's children and not just some of them. So That reminds me of what you did with Isaiah 58 today and this evening. And you say in the book, Subversive Witness, Truth and reconciliation are not simultaneous. They are sequential. Tell the truth first, and it's the truth that motivates you to understand what it will take to recover, repair, endure, to reconcile. And I know for you know, some of my friends that are in the reconciliation movement, there's been some fatigue of like, what are we even reconciling to, and where are we getting anywhere? 
But I love that Isaiah 58 because that language about repair of the breach I'm in, it's scaling the wall work, but it, it's sequential to the, to the real fast, to the real worship, to laying our lives on the altar of saying, God, that we have benefited from privilege. Our church has been silent in certain conversations, particular to race. And God, I know that sometimes we want to move past it, but if we, if we lament and we name our brokenness and ask you, God, to, 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 to move us from this heap on the ground, then God's like, now I can use you. And sometimes we want to skirt this or we want to say like, well, didn't some other generation do the work? And God's inviting us again uh, to do that work of the real fast, Isaiah 58 style. And then we get moved into those healing, reconciling, repairing movements. So it's super beautiful. I've been moved by that all day by you. Well, I think this is a great time to transition to our next question. I think we've already been hinting at some of it, but we want to kind of contextualize this a little bit more broadly, particularly as a church trying to move into racial justice, trying to move into that work and recognizing there's some unique challenges and also there's a unique uh, invitation to respond as followers of, of Jesus. So the question is, what is a, a significant challenge to becoming a more racially just church? You can think about that broadly. You can think about that here at Bethany or, Dominique, feel free to answer however you want, but, and how might we respond to that uniquely as uh, followers of Christ? So kind of a two-part question, and I think we invited Scott. Would you want to share first? Yeah, I'd love to just um, start from this place of challenge, because I hear a lot from folks who, uh, even in the last sermon series, you know, wanted to chat about the series Restoration, and Hey, isn't that work, you know, pretty personal? And, you know, it's not, I don't have a personal race problem. I haven't, I haven't committed any personal acts of racism. Isn't it just personal? Or isn't that in the past? Like, haven't we done that already? And, and there's objections. Um, but one of the things that I feel like is a, is a huge obstacle for the church is to say, like, what we can do together is, is more powerful than we can do individually. And we can look at that systemic, that structural, that, that, that work that's undermining. And Dominique touched on it so well this evening. But like, even if I didn't create the problem, I'm invited to participate in the inbreaking of the power of God. This is where the church takes up its, its healing again. And in the postcard uh, that everybody's got in their hand on... I'm super happy to see this given out tonight because our art department at Bethany, our communication department, uh, we have some graphic artists that created this artwork, and it's a tree that's been made whole again through the Japanese art style of kintsugi. And we've we've preached about it, we've talked about it. Kintsugi is the 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 remaking of uh, broken pots through golden lacquer. It's a Japanese art form. It's beautiful. And I was listening to this podcast recently, um, and there was uh, this Japanese artist, Makuta Fujimura, who was talking about kintsugi specifically. And one of the things I, j- I was learning on his podcast was that when it, came to, uh, when it came to popularity in Japan, it was a time of great tribalism and great feudal wars. And this, this art form of taking broken things and repainting them and remaking them with this golden lacquer so they're more valuable, not in hiding away the brokenness, but in highlighting the time in which in, in Japan history it kind of came to most prominence was this time they needed a new healing agent because they were so divided. And as I was hearing Fujimura speak and I was thinking about Bethany's art, artist creating this, I was like, oh, again, bubblings up of hope because maybe just maybe this last couple of years, all the fragmentation, all the what feels like in the church can be hopelessness and people tuning out and turning off. Maybe there's this divine invitation that as we name the brokenness, again, getting to 
to your question, what's the obstacle right now? And to say, you know what? It's not just personal. It's not just in the past. As we reclaim our divine invitation that only the church can do, that as we say, yeah, there have been misses. We have failed at a time where we didn't leverage when we were the center point of American society as the church. And now we lament that you know some of our power and influence is slipping, but maybe just maybe God's saying, this is the moment where you take the brokenness, repaint it with the lacquer that is the life of Christ to say, like, let's regain our divine witness. So I felt super hopeful for that in that kind of restoration moment through the artwork and saying, yeah, there is a real challenge, especially to kind of name the tension, you know, for some folks uh, who have benefited from the privilege of maleness or whiteness, to talk about white supremacy, like, whoa, those are, those are big things that really have to wrestle there. And I can run, but I, or I can face it. And I'm a big proponent that what's not healed is handed down. So those of us that are discipling in our homes, those of us leading in the church, those of us particularly as leaders, and I would say, you know, I want to call my, my white brothers and sisters to task and say, like, let's stand together to say, like, let's lead out on this. To say, like, this isn't a cultural issue. This is a scriptural one. And we would get to reclaim that witness and take that role of leadership again. That's a moment of opportunity for us. Yeah, that was, um, I'm thinking about, you said the, like the gold lacquer to fill in our brokenness is Christ. Mm -hmm. Like, that's beautiful. And I was thinking of um, the the passage that says it's by his wounds that we're healed. uh, And... And, and the the thing that I think is a a, a big challenge um, to becoming more racially just is that is the cost like to like Paul and Silas uh, they absorbed suffering that they didn't need to um, because they wanted to have solidarity with Christ and Christ's sufferings and like be able to have solidarity with the marginalized and even though I like grew up again there's a song in the back of my head about wounds the Christ's wounds heal me but but like am I willing to take on the cost of solidarity with Christ in that believing that from that comes this beautiful gold lacquer that hold binds us together like I think a a barrier is the fear that my brokenness is gonna and our brokenness is just gonna leave us as a pile of rubble like can it can there really be restoration um like that kind holding on to that kind of hope is a challenge to maintain um but I think that what the what the church has uniquely as followers of Jesus is that we have Jesus. Like if we really live the full story of Good Friday, Holy Saturday of waiting. And then if Easter Sunday really is true, we know that we aren't left as a pile of rubble because our savior is alive. So I mean, every sort of place where racially injustice is happening and there's this brokenness like to truly live into Easter Sunday means leaning into the full like cycle of of the gospel story in that space so yeah it's it's really I think the thing that I've learned most uh that I now think of as adulting is being able to hold two very opposite things at the same time like to both be like 
can restoration really happen, but also holding so tightly to like, and Jesus is alive, so yes. <laughs> so like, I think that that's, that's the challenge and, and the, what the church brings to me. I think as I'm thinking about what the challenge is, I just keep thinking about um, when you're talking about the rubble, it made me think also of like puzzle pieces and all of the different pieces that are needed in order to create like a whole bowl again. Um, and one of the things that Dominique shared earlier in this last weekend was about that we talk about the Imago Day, but we don't talk about the Imago Day enough. And so just this idea that like, that the diversity is a gift, like it is something that it, it's, it in itself can be a benefit and a, a value to us, not a problem to be solved. Um, it's not a matter of like, just get all the numbers right and then everything will be okay. It's more of like, wow, like my life is richer for being closer to someone that is different than me. Um, and I think being like being a biracial person, like we experience that in our home. And so being able to like think of our home, like our church is our home as our space that we're coming together as family. And then you look across and it's like, well, what, what, does that, what does that mean as you look across the table? And we have so much imagery about what the table at the end of time will look like, but that like the kingdom is now also. And we have this opportunity to, to live into that gift. And so um, I think that's a huge challenge, especially when, it, it, when you look around and you're like, well, how come no one wants to participate with us? Like, and it's like, well, I don't think it's necessarily that people don't want to participate with us. I think it might be something going on inside that we should look at first. So I, I do feel like this question of um, how do we engage is not going out. Like you said, like you're not just going to them to serve. Like you're actually mixing your life and it's getting messy and you, you lose something. Like you give something up by stepping into that space. Um, but I think that's something that we get to ask God. Like what are you asking me to give up? And help me do it. Like we're not doing it just on our out of our own will, but we're being moved by the Spirit to make these choices. So that's what I'm thinking about. Think about this question. There's this popular saying, I don't even know who said it first. But they said, Jesus may be in my heart, but grandpa is in my bones. <laughs> and I think because of the way that the church has historically, and I'll just be more explicit, predominantly the white church has explicitly historically said that race is not a discipleship issue. It's a secular issue. It's an issue that is of secondary concern. There has not been due diligence done to the scriptural work around this conversation to give us really the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts to respond to the commission to be ambassadors of reconciliation in the divided world. Um, it's been something that certain people who are passionate about are supposed to do that, or certain people are called to that, but that's not a core component of faithfully following Jesus in a racially divided world. And so we are late to the game, to the conversation, and we've got a lot of biblical theological work to do to help our members to understand how urgent this conversation is. Um, Kind of going back to what you referenced a little bit, Scott, about the urgency in regards to um, young folk. I, I always go back to this quote from Dr. King. He says that if the church doesn't recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without any moral or spiritual authority. And I want you to hear me well, church. That is what so much of the world is saying the church is right now. 
Dr. King said that in 1964. We are seeing that lived out right now. That is what people believe that we are. And we still have another opportunity to declare that that's not who we're going to be anymore. That we're going to turn away from that old way of being to prophetically live into our biblical identity. Um, But it's going to be hard uphill work. Um, And we have to be clear about all of the ways in which the scripture explicitly names this as part of the mission of the people of God. Um, so I'm thankful for the work that you all are doing here at Bethany to make that plain, but uh, there, this is an uphill battle and it is, can't be a sermon series. It has to be uh, intentional, thorough integration from our worship to our Bible studies to our preaching and teaching and missional engagements. For our final just questions I'd like to propose for all of you. We've heard a lot. We've thought about a lot. Just curious, what kind of last invitation, challenge, encouragement, whatever that might look like you'd like to, to leave our community with in regards to what Dominique has shared or what else is just stirring with you? Just kind of final words for, for our night. Megan, I think we had you share first. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about um, about what one of the things Dominique said about uh, how it has to do with not just like not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with others and our relationship with creation. And when I think about this like moment in time, like we have this opportunity to participate in our own formation. Like we're constantly being formed all the time. Things are coming at us that are that are forming us, whether we're aware of it or not. And so we have again this invitation to participation, this opportunity to to like step into something like and get get messy with it and to not just sit here and think like we're a church that I know really values like good solid thinking and teaching and all of that and it's good and important and like let's step out into it let's like let's fail but like let's get out there and um because in the end like we can think about it all day long but there's a call for us as a church as part of our own formation to participate in this today. So. Thank you for that encouragement to fail, Megan. We need that. Honestly, I, I need that. It can be scary, intimidating work, um, and there can be serious consequences to failing, but that's in many ways the invitation to do that together, thoughtfully, humbly. So I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in just to say um, so much of what you shared today. I, I just notes and so many ideas, but you know, I, I felt like the Lord saying, even while you were sharing tonight, like this is the missional moment. Like this is the, the commissioning to lead this movement. And you use the term, and I love it, the watershed moment where, you know, people are looking at the church and what, what do you stand for? What are your lived values? And I have zero desire to, to build a, a, a different kind of, you know, enterprise that looks like what Dr. King talks about, like the YMCA or a woke coffee shop. No, this is the church. This is our calling. This is our, this is our anointing. This is like the Lord putting that cloak around us and saying, you are my beloved daughters and sons to lead this moment. And it's beautiful and difficult. It was Desmond Tutu, I think, who said, like, instead of just pulling people out from the water, like, start going upstream and figuring out who's pushing people in. And so this work is this upstream moment to say, like, where are people being marginalized, being pushed into the water, so to speak, so that we become those healers, those agents of reconciliation? We will fail. 
I've failed, even people on this stage. And then we tell the truth and say, I'll do better. And we work together and you build deep relationship. And, you know, it's, that, it's that, that video we looked at the end. You never stop fighting for your own. And so it's us looking into this city and saying, thank you, Jesus, for, for this city and, and for the people that are here. How do you help us make all the people of the city made in your image how do we see them as our own? Not just the ones we see on Sunday mornings, but the ones we don't see on Sunday mornings and regain, regain that true calling, the people like living our values. Like this is, the, this is the moment as the church. So it's difficult work, but I'm, I'm in for it because I think what else are we gonna do, right? Like who wants to just be in our safe little bubbles and be you know, doing the next sermon series and do to do, no, let's change the world together, shall we? Um, that's what I'm in for. That's my boss. Yeah. <laughs> that makes me excited. Um, that outburst just made me forget the thought that I had. Um, Jonathan, do you want to say something? <laughs> um, I think one of the hopes for me is that hopefully kind of today's message and the book, um, if you get a chance to pick it up, it will start to give you some tools to like read scripture differently. Um, I think we can try to be as creative and ingenuitous as we can, but the truth is in the text. And... I think we need to turn back to the word of God and allow the word of God to speak on its own terms. I think for so many of us, we have started to think of scripture as a bunch of archaic stories that have no relevance for our day and time. And that's not true. The, the word of God is living and breathing and active and relevant for us right now. It is a blueprint for how we navigate the complexities of the world that we're confronted with in this moment in time. But we have to get beyond the interpretations that have been normalized for us that frame how we read the text and allow the text to speak to us on its own terms. Um, the text wants to liberate us to live prophetically in sacrificially for God in ways that brings life out of death, that brings transformation where it's so desperately needed. And I hope that we are able to read the text in ways where we stop and we sit and we notice new things and make new connections that compel us to live distinctively for Jesus. It's possible. We don't need to try to recreate something or make something up on our own. The Spirit is continuing to speak through the Word of God, and we can build our lives on that firm, solid foundation, knowing that it will not lead us astray. Um, but we've got to hold each other accountable to resist the Sunday school narratives that we've been told because it's only part of the goodness of God. It's not the fullness. And we got to continue to glean the rest of the goodness so that we can live in accordance with uh, what the spirit is willing into existence. Um, I have two things that I'm thinking of. Uh, the first is... 
an encouragement to um, do this scripture reading, this digging into the goodness of God related to um, the liberating gospel with other people, like uh, these folks who are up here, now including you, I'm grateful for that, but these folks up here are my people for doing this with, and it's not, it, um, that's the reason why I feel able to be in the role that I'm in, or even just um, be able to do the work. So do this with people. Uh, the second is an exhortation uh, that I so boldly want to give it to say, don't let the thoughts that you're having tonight end tonight. I know that God is persistent. We see in scripture that God fulfills what God intends to do, but let us be used by God. Like God can use us to do what God wants to do. And we see that God is a God of restoration. We see the brokenness of racism in uh, our context in our lives right now. Like let us go from this place tonight and let God use us in that work. So that's my exhortation. Can I, can I also just say like when you're communing with people to read the word, Read the word with somebody else who doesn't enjoy the same privileges as you do. Allow them to speak into some of the blind spots that you might have and help you to read the text from a different perspective. Um, One of the ways that this is most profoundly manifested in my life is I get a chance to teach inside of a maximum security prison. And I get to read scripture alongside of incarcerated sisters and brothers, some of which are in there for life. And how they read and respond to the text is so categorically different. It gives me such a new perspective on how some of these texts should actually be interpreted that my privilege has prohibited me from seeing before. And so there really is a gospel truth to the fact that we are better together. I think this becomes this mantra that we use and hear out in the world. But there really is something true about the fact. And this is why I think Jesus was so intentional about this in Matthew 25, where he talks about the least of these. Like there is something fresh and urgent about the gospel that's unlocked when we actually commune with those who exist on the margins of society, who have endured a different categorical experience of the world than what we have um, oftentimes. And so I really do believe that we need to be in biblical communion together with those who are different than us. Well said. Well, Taylor, Scott. Do you want to do you want to do one? Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to work with the timing, but I'll share something. I'll try to be brief. A question I wrestle with a lot is in, in the midst of just a long, ugly history of the church failing. Maybe it's or turn it this just more like, yep. Let's try this. Let's go. All right. I think I wrestle a lot with recognizing, hey, the church has, you know, often failed in this and yet wanting to hold on to the, the belief that the church has something unique and beautiful to offer. And I think you mentioned it before, this idea that when we become Christians, our life is supposed to be marked by a, a different way. And, um, and Taylor, you kind of touched upon this idea of living in light of the cross and the resurrection, that tension between that. And so that is beautiful, but it's also hard. I don't want to carry my cross. And yet that's the invitation. And there's something so beautiful about witnessing that in the story of, of Paul and Silas and in uh, other stories as well. So what I'm trying to hold on and maybe what I'd like to encourage us all is that we kind of hold on to that 
overarching framework that as Christians, especially our staff, we enter this with a lot of humility, with a lot of mistakes, and yet there is something beautiful about knowing that um, the cross that we bear is a cross we don't bear alone, and that the resurrection really does make all the difference. And so that's what I want to hold on to in times of doubt and discouragement and just a lot of disappointment, recognizing, yes, the church does indeed have something unique to offer, um, not because we're particularly special or noteworthy, but because the, the God, the God spirit who lives within us actually is indeed alive. So that's what I want to hold on to. That's what I'd like to encourage you all to, to sit with as we kind of close our time together. Taylor, Scott, Dominique, Megan, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to vulnerably share. It's, it can be a intimidating thing to be a part of a panel. There's no real script. We can mess up. We can forget things. But I do appreciate the ways that not only you engage the questions, but you engage each other. And that was a real Why you got to call me out for forgetting stuff? No, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. I forgot. My, my microphone wasn't even working. So it's all good. It's all good. It's all good. Friends, can we thank our panelists today? Thanks. Um, so, uh, as we close, um, want to uh, thank you, Dominique, for being with us today, for your investment in our community. Um, grateful for the work that you're doing and knowing that it's being multiplied in the other places where you're speaking. So, thank you for coming and being with us. Um, let's clap for him again. Thank you. Yes, good stuff. Um, the, the things I want to let you know as you head out first is related to your postcard. Uh, I did not say all of the details about it from the beginning, so you might not have left a space on it to write your address on it. So if you did not, you can pick up another postcard. But our hope is for you to uh, write your name, your address on a postcard, write a thought, a next step, something related to what you want to engage in um, after tonight. There will be baskets in the lobby for you to drop them in, and we will mail them to you um, in, the, in the future. So you'll be able to remember what you were thinking about tonight. Uh, the second thing is that there will be a QR code up here uh, that you can snap with your phone for some uh, pathways of next things that you can engage uh, on your own with others. Um, wanting to make it tangible with a book and with a, an, an experience that you can uh, engage in. So there will be that resource. Uh, and then out in the lobby, you'll be able to purchase a copy of Subversive Witness um, and uh, be able to meet Dominique out in the lobby as well. So as we go from this place, I actually want to invite you to stand again. And Dominique is going to um, pray over us as a, a blessing sending us out. God, I'd just like to thank you for bringing us all together in this place and space. Um, I know that you are doing something new in Bethany, and I'd like to thank you for the witness that will reverberate from this space. Uh, help Bethany to become uh, known in the city as a repairer of the breaches that exist in this community. 
um, help this to radiate through all six locations, help it to radiate into the places and spaces that our congregants work in and move in and the places and spaces, uh, help people to realize the restorative power of your love through the lives of the people in this room tonight. Um, help us to understand the fierce urgency of now and to go out and to live on fire for you, knowing that we are in a moment where the world is desperately hoping that the church arises and lives into its identity uh, as the biblical people who are commissioned to bring transformation, restoration, and liberation where death, oppression, and injustice have reigned for far too long. Help us to be people who subversively use all that you have given us to expand the kingdom and to sacrificially love our neighbors. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Go with joy.